This week's episode of the Vel News Podcast, sponsored by Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on your performance of your sleep on how recovered your body is and how much stress and exertion you put on your body throughout the day. Every day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based off of your sleep, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability that can be used as an indicator for how to approach your day. Is it gonna be a big day? Is it gonna be a chill day? The app has built-in features like Strain Coach, which gives you targeted exertion goals to work out optimally at your body's recovery level. Whoop automatically detects and categorizes your activities so there's no need to start and stop your workout. You can analyze your heart rate, throughout the entirety of your workout and also track your calories burned, max heart rate, average heart rate. It's the perfect way to train. The app also has a built-in sleep coach, which lets you know how much sleep you should be getting based on your expected activity level for the following day so you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals. You may have read or listened to some of our podcasts with Kate Courtney talking about how Whoop has helped her with her performance goals. Basically, it tracks your sleep, your heart rate, all these other factors, wraps it all together and tells you if you can have a big day, if your body's recovered and you're ready to take on, you know, some five-hour monster ride, or if you need to chill. Some days, hey, the motivation is there, but your body actually needs an extra day of rest, and Whoop is the tool that can tell you that. Okay, right now we have a great deal for listeners of the podcast. If you use the code VELONEWS, all caps, VELONEWS, at checkout, go to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P. Again, code VELONEWS at checkout. You get 15% off. So you can sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Thanks so much to Whoop for sponsoring the podcast. All right, let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Vail News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on another beautiful June day here in Boulder, Colorado. Today's podcast is all about race, racial bias, and racism in cycling. Look, I wanted to have this conversation last week, but full disclosure, you know, I didn't have the guests lined up. And my thought was that having a conversation between myself, Andrew Hood, and James Sturt on uh, the topic of race and cycling was not going to add anything to the wider dialogue. So this week, I have two guests on the podcast for the topic at hand, Rasan Bahati and Alan Lim. Um, I chose these guys for two different reasons. First, both Alan and Rasan are, they're minorities, they've worked in American cycling for the better part of the last two decades. I remember reading about Rassan when he was a teenager in Outside Magazine in the late 90s. Uh, Alan has worked with World Tour teams, junior riders, male, female. He has coached them all. Um, and I chose it for another reason. Uh, last week, when we were reaching out to cyclists to have interviews and conversations about um, racism and racial bias in pro cycling and amateur cycling. We interviewed Rasan, and Rasan talked about his experience in the American cycling scene and how he felt like, you know, there had been this fraternity culture that he felt like he could never really break into. Um, and in the interview, he mentioned he felt like Alan had been part of that culture, and it sparked a conversation between the two of them because. Alan, as a Chinese-American, had said, you know, I always felt like I was on the outside of the fraternity culture. And I think it was a really helpful and enlightening dialogue between the two of them that I felt like would be then uh, an enlightening dialogue for the listeners of the podcast um, to try and understand what it's like to be a minority in American cycling, how our own racial bias biases, you know, overt or subversive shape what a cycling community looks like. And so that's why we're talking to them today. You know, the the protests, the murder of George Floyd, the moment right now I feel like is is getting a lot of us to look at our own corners of the universe and ask tough questions about race. And that's what we're trying to do here at Vela News. Look at cycling, pro cycling, American cycling, amateur cycling, and ask ourselves, how does race shape this scene? And so that's what we're getting at today with Alan and Rasan, and I really appreciate these two guys for coming on to have this conversation. So let's get to it. Rasan Bahati and Alan Lim. Alan Lim, founder of Scratch Labs, longtime sports scientist, uh, worked with World Tour riders for years and years and years. Now he does most of his work with collegiate racers, junior racers, female cyclists. 
Uh, and we have Rasan Bahati, 10-time national champion, founder of the Bahati Foundation. And guys, hey, I'm really psyched that you wanted to come on the podcast and have this conversation about race and cycling. Um, it's it's a difficult conversation that I definitely didn't feel comfortable having myself or with Andy Hood or any of the other uh, people in the Velenu staff. Um, I really wanted to get um, minorities in cycling who've had a lot of experience in cycling to talk about um, to talk about their experience through the lens of race, both good and bad. And we're going to do that today. We're going to talk about um, the programs that we see succeeding, uh, ways in which we feel like the sport can overcome its hurdles with race. Because, yeah, I mean, it's no brainer. You look around at cycling, super white sport. Um, so I guess my first question for both you and Rasan, I'll let you start first, is just, you know, t- take us through your experience in cycling through the lens of race. I'm sure that a lot of people in the minorities in cycling right now have been looking at their own experiences through the lens of race. And I'd love to hear yours. Yeah. Just, uh, first, thanks for, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, some may or may not know this story. I was born and raised in, in Compton and, um, I found the sport of cycling at 11 years old. And to this day, I always wonder why the teacher who introduced me to the sport didn't like bring it to the masses. Why didn't he tell the entire school or the entire class? Um, and for me, it was right place at the right time. Doing the wrong thing at the right time is why I even found, found cycling. It was a, it was a form of punishment, but, um, you know, I, I got into the sport and, and as I went through the, you know, just as a recreational rider, I guess you could call it, just kind of having fun. And then all of a sudden you're competing. Now all of a sudden you have people telling you you're good and, now you're traveling and racing somewhere uh, for national championships. Um, it was a, a really fun ride. Um, and then, you know, things started to get really serious at about 17. You know, you start thinking, you start seeing the European races and seeing people that are making a living out of the sport. And that was the age for me, at least. I was like, wait a second, I can continue to do this and someone can pay me to do it. All right, I better, you know, buckle, buckle down. Um, you know, and so... I think I was on cruise control or maybe even I was naive up until the point of, I don't know, 22, 23, when I got to Indiana University, when I realized that there, it's not just the people behind closed doors that are racist. You know, there's people who don't like you because of the color of your skin that was right in front of you and will let you know. Um, so yeah, like even at, at IU, I, I, we, I say we, cause I, I was there with a group of, black cyclist that was going to totally change the history of the little 500 and the history of the little 500. There wasn't one uh, team that was predominantly black. There was some one-off riders that were African-American or black, um, but never a team. So this team was put together. And I mean, just from the start, it was complete racism towards our team, you know, uh, from the points of, uh, protesting the start, having other teams, fraternities not start because they didn't want to race with us. This is 2001, you know, um, having, uh, tires slashed and, and windows broken out and just like, you know, it was crazy. So that's when it really hit home for me that wait a second, even though we all are in this together and doing this event together. It's not like it used to be when I was 15, 16, 17, racing against kids from all over the country, when it was just a bunch of fun, like it brought to my eyes how different I really was. And so moving forward through the sport, um, for, for me, I finally realized that it, it couldn't be just what I did on the bike. It wasn't just talent. It had to be more than that. And, you know, that, that the title in the Vela News article, I think in a way, was it was a little confusing to some um you know it it was uh i had to conform to get my foot in the door and some people say well you know in life you got to do that anyway but it was really more about no i can't be myself i'm not saying i can roll up anywhere and and have you know hat on backwards and and pants halfway down my ass but you know it just the the true point of that statement was that I couldn't walk into the building. I couldn't be myself and still be looked at as an educated, uh, athletic black male. You know, I had I had to kind of wiggle my way. So that's kind of getting off topic. But that's when I really um, realized about the age of 21, 22, that 
race was definitely a big factor in cycling. Rasan, did that did that make this is Alan Alan talking? Did that make you feel lonely? Um, not at the time. And the only reason it didn't is because I had other black people with, you know, I had someone to lean on, you know, um, now it did make you feel, make me feel lonely when I was out, you know, in Europe racing, uh, racing, uh, or if I was out on the road on a predominantly white team. And, you know, I, I tell people this story all the time. My really good friend, Devin Hoffie, so I'm not sure if you remember him, but he was a national team guy. He wrote with Eric Saunders. Um, he wrote, you know, on Lombardi and stuff like that. We were never on the same team except when we were juniors. So when we came pros and we're on different teams, no matter the race we went to, we would always hook up together. We were our own safety net and it was just us two, you know, so that, that alone puts sometimes a negative thought in my teammates' mind, like, oh, he don't want to hang out with us. He's always doing his own thing. It's just that I, I didn't want to feel lonely and he didn't want to feel lonely. So somehow we would always just connect. He would spend all day at my hotel or I'll spend all day at his just to feel like a sense of, uh, of home and community. And that's what we needed with each other. Yeah. So maybe you could, uh, maybe you could kind of tell us your, uh, your beginning. Yeah. And, uh, Simpler, right. Because, because, you know, we're both from Los Angeles. My family immigrated, to. To LA, China, Philippines, Philippines to America, uh, running away from communism, running away from oppression, um, coming to America because it was the great land of freedom, right? And all of a sudden you are hit with the fact that you are different and maybe equality means something very different mm -hmm. uh, as an immigrant. Um, so obviously our, our, our stories are similar, but also very, very different because I think that um, being Asian, people judge me in a different way. I was much easier to be made fun of. Um, I was not threatening to people, right? Which is the opposite part of the spectrum. And so it is more just kind of being a point of uh, being a young kid who was easy to kind of uh, push around, if you will. Um, for me, cycling was really, um, it was just a lot of luck, you know? It started because um, I became really interested in it by watching what happened in 1984 Olympics, right? And the Olympics were in Los Angeles. Um, my parents got us to some of the events. Uh, I saw the cycling happen there and the dominance of the U.S. team. Uh, and I really wanted to ride. And I, I got to start through the Boy Scouts because there was a merit badge that you could do to get a cycling merit badge, right? So I, I was given a old yellow Schwinn Huffy, you know, one of those one of those yellow Schwinn ten speeds. Uh, got to rebuild it, learn how it worked, and just started riding this thing all around. I think I rode this thing so much because I never felt like I fit in, and so cycling becomes like this great place for misfits and for people who just want to be alone or mm -hmm. I could lose myself. I could go on these long rides through Los Angeles, places that I'd never tell my parents that I ride to because they think I'd get run over by a bus, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, but it gave me so much, so much independence. Um, I was lucky that I found a, a team, the Montrose Cycling Club, which had riders like Freddie Rodriguez and uh, Antonio Cruz, who mm -hmm. were also minorities in the sport. You know, uh, Tony's dad was such a role model for us and would take us to races and events. You know, and I saw all of these kids who just loved the sport. I mean, Freddie. We would go to races and, and there were often times where he never had a bicycle. So he would ask to borrow a bike at wow. the race and fit it to himself so that he could race. So, but didn't stop him from just showing up. So yeah. I had these really great, great friends and, and, and role models. And it was weird because as a kid, I, I thought that racism was normal, especially in Los Angeles because everybody lived in different neighborhoods. So like Freddie lived in one neighborhood. I lived in another neighborhood. You know, we live, we sit, we, Los Angeles is like that, right? You go to Koreatown or you go to, you know, Chinatown or you go to, you know, one part of town that is mostly one ethnicity. Yeah. And so, you know, I look back at even some of these friendships and they would call me Rim instead of Lim, right? Mm. But it was just kind of, that was the way and, and it was kind of weird. But I think for me, um, you know, I raised with my cousin, John, uh, my other cousins, Sean and Brian, my brother, Almerick raced as well. And we were pretty good. You know, I got fifth at junior nationals one year. Uh, John was up there as well and was really talented. He went on to win a collegiate national title at Berkeley. But all of the 
kids that we were better with on that same team, they got invited to go to the Olympic training center. We didn't get invited, you know, and that hurt us real bad. That stung us real bad. And for me, that was kind of like, all right, fuck that. Fuck this. I know I'm smart too. I'm going to go get an education. And I kind of just gave up on it Mm -hmm. and went to school instead, but never fell out of love with it. So I ended up kind of um, maybe falling into the stereotype of being the smart guy being the Asian, studying sports science and kind of connecting the sport through through coaching. You know, I think both of you guys touched on something that I think has been you know, something I've seen in my own reporting, which is um, the role that like the the few role models who are people of color who have succeeded in cycling, like how important those people are in a grassroots cycling community to kids when they're coming up. You know, Rasan, in the Q&A, you mentioned, you know, Having Nelson Vales, you know, this guy who's second place at the Olympics, um, who's a black rider. And and Alan, you talked about having some, you know, Freddy Rodriguez, you know, some of these guys who were minorities, but they're really succeeding and like just how important that is. And, you know, I, I'm curious, like, A, how did you see that in your own experience? But like, you know, especially you, Rassam, because you you definitely are and have been one of these figures in the in the sport for the last two decades. Like, what's it like to be a person that uh, other cyclists then look up to because you're a minority? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a good question. And if I could go back to, I don't know if you were recording when you threw this out there, but, but you were talking about like what the cycling media could do better. Um, and, and not like trying to have a pity party for, for Nelson. Uh, I call him ride with Nelly. I think that's his, his, his uh, slogan. Um, but like, I always feel for him because he gave a lot to the sport of cycling. Um, you know, they dominated the 84 Olympics for track sprinting and the U S went one, two. I mean, how awesome is that? Right. Um, and I just kind of feel like he is a, like a forgotten hero that is still here today. He's not dead. Right. Um, and he doesn't get the recognition that he deserves. Uh, he doesn't have a platform to let other minorities know what he's accomplished in the sport of cycling and what can be accomplished. I mean, if you know his history, where he came from New York, you know, just a simple bike messenger dude. And all of a sudden he's an Olympic medalist is pretty amazing. So, um, to like the cycling world, the cycling, uh, uh, media out there, I think they, you guys can do a much better job telling those stories. Um, you know, it doesn't have to wait till Black History Month to have something cool to say about Major Taylor, you know what I mean? Or the Kevin Maxis that came, you know, during like Nelson Bell's time. Um, so that's what I would say there. So, um, yeah, but to, to answer your original question, um, I don't know, man. I just, I, it wasn't until recently, I, you know, you hear social media helps with a lot. You get people chiming in on things and, dude, you know, I saw you at the CSC Invitational you took the time to sign the cover magazine that we have for Peloton and you changed my life forever. And I got started in the, in the sport because of you. That wasn't until recently, you know, given social media. Um, and even now I, I don't, I don't go about my life doing things to with this motive that I'm helping someone. I'm just trying to go through my life by doing the right thing. And if it, if I so happen to uh, have a positive experience for someone then so be it you know what i mean and it's not just the black community it could be anyone i mean these messages come from all of i just got a message this morning from a guy in alabama that just said hey i've been praying for your family i know you guys are in la yada 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 um i'm so happy i met you and i can support your foundation i ride for your foundation you know this is a middle-aged white guy in alabama so um again back to my point just i try to do the right things um that if it has a positive reflection, great. If it doesn't, I'm still, it's my duty to still do the right thing. You know, um, to your question, Fred, and to your point, Rasan, first I want to mention Scott Berryman because he's another, mm-hmm. you know, black rider who never really got much attention yep. and who had to fight a lot and fight really hard. And I think that in some ways, you know, he's still, um, he's got some, some, some incredible stories of, of of what he went through mm-hmm. and he missed the kind of 84 boat right so even less attention because the spotlight wasn't there yep. uh, but to your question fred about kind of what it feels like what what it's like to have some role models and who we are today um for me one of the biggest role models was a guy named Wigbert Sai, 
He's also Chinese from the Philippines. He spoke all the dialects my parents spoke. And I know that if he wasn't there as a coach for me, or maybe even as a coach for my parents to speak the same language as them, to let them to trust that I could be okay as a bike rider, I don't know if my parents would ever feel comfortable with that. Mm. And I never, I don't know if I would have thought that it was possible. Wig was also an Olympian. He was also a doctor. He was all these things. And so I projected so much of what I wanted to be in life by looking at what he accomplished in life. And this happened to me at a young age when I was still a kid. And so even though cycling is really white dominant, I feel comfortable in cycling because I'm confident about my ability to ride. But I will share this. I live in Colorado. I've been in Colorado for the majority of my life now. And I still don't ski. And I don't ski because when I go on the ski slopes and I see how many white people there are, and I don't see any minorities, I don't see any Asians, I don't see anyone different than that, I feel really, really uncomfortable. And so it's not just that I don't have the skills developed, but I don't feel like I belong up there. I feel that same way about going to the beach. It's weird, <laughs> you know, like I don't go to the beach and I don't go to the mountains to ski. But here's what's interesting is my brother, who's only 18 months older than me, he did pick up skiing when he was younger and he did pick up surfing in LA when he was younger. And so he'll come and visit me in Colorado and he'll go skiing because he feels confident in that. So I think a lot has to happen when you're at a young age to feel accepted when race, even if there isn't racism, race plays a role in, in, in your personal comfort level. Right. Absolutely. That's a good point. How'd you guys feel like you, um, saw racism or just bias as you got to the top end of your respected um, spots in the sport. I mean, Rasan, you talked about it coming up, you know, as a development rider in Indiana University. What about at the top end as a pro or like trying to get to Europe or trying to get to the world tour? And Alan, you know, what about when you were sort of at the top? You know, I, I think I think a lot of us look at the riders who get to the top, top, top of the sport and think like, well, you know, everything, I don't know, people must be judged just by the performances up there. But you know, at the very top end of the sport, how do you see these mechanisms of, of bias um, working? Yeah, I would definitely say at the top, um, and I never even made it world tour, right? I don't even know if they had world tour then, but um, I never made it to like that highest point of, of racing. Like, I think the biggest thing that I ever competed in uh, as a pro was like Tour of Britain. Um, uh, so, and I had a little bit of success there and that was later on, that was well after my TA craft days. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it's, we talk about, you know, the sport being, it's such an elitist sport and very like clickish and it's, um, everything is under a microscope at that point. And then more than that, I feel like these are my personal feelings. It's well, that's when I use the word fraternity or it's like this good old boy network right um i could i could lay out so many examples of riders that haven't performed over the years but yet still have a contract going forward but yet you can look at someone like i'll use myself or uh what was the uh a train dude tecla tecla not i can't pronounce his last name um you know he had that coming out party where he was rocking the tour that year in the polka dot jersey huge for the black community. You know what I mean? Black people started watching the tour because of that. They didn't even know what country he was from, but he was black. Uh, so they were excited. Uh, you know, and then he, the progression still wasn't as great, but, and all of a sudden he's kind of like slowly removed away and out of the sport, um, which it, it sucks. And, and that's where I think we get an unfair shakedown. You know what I mean? Um, I mentioned that, like, I just wish I had someone that continue to support me even on those down years because alan you study this stuff yeah. you know it goes like this it's not always this you know upward trajectory and sometimes you have a couple years that are off i mean it's, you can name all the things, right yeah but you know so that's where for me it's it's been disappointing that that support factor is not there and then two we fight so hard to get there and it's easily taken away from you yeah. um I, I have more time I can go to body 11. I saw the, your, your countdown. 
Yeah, no, that was because I'm a derelict Zoom member and it wanted to charge me money. So I was like, oh, shoot, I got to get out my credit card and update this Zoom plan to keep the Villain News podcast rolling. That's right. Bootstrapping it here at the Villain News podcast. Fred Dreyer put his own credit card number down. Yeah, you know, uh, to speak to your question, uh, Fred, if you're, if you're, if you're done with Son, um, I never really experienced any, like, I got made fun of as a kid growing up being Chinese. I got made fun of when, you know, my kids would laugh in the pack when my dad would yell out in his strong Chinese accent for me on the side of the road, right? Uh, kids would call me Rim all the time, um, you know, but I didn't really experience pointed racism until I was in Europe um, at the very, very top level where, you know, um, people would steal my rice cooker and leave me notes that would say, get, get, you know, get out China, man. Um, I, you know, got spit on at the Giro d'Italia, you know, when I walked in the team hotel by, by fans who weren't spitting on me because of the uniform I was wearing or spitting on me because I was the only, you know, minority who, who walked in. Um, you know, I'd be at the Tour de France and other staff members would make Kung Fu sounds and chopping gestures at me laughing every time I walked by. Right. Um, you know, I once tried to, uh, make food for a team at a race hotel and uh the chefs there started yelling screaming at me to get out because i wasn't welcome because i was chinese and that they didn't serve chinese food you know um so i got a lot of a lot of shit through my career but i also got a lot of support i remember another time i walked into a team hotel and the chef started going off of me and another chef sean fowler uh started fucking throwing pots at the guy right <laughs> Um, and really stood up for me and, you know, as a whole, um, uh, you know, people I worked with stood up for me and, 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 and they let me have a place, but, you know, it was also really, really shitty to the extent that I started, you know, I make these stickers now with me holding a rice cooker, right. And it says, this is my rice cooker because the rice cooker became like my symbol of defiance. It was like, I was going to bring a rice cooker to every single race. I went to and just put it right there on the, on the team table for everyone to see, you know? Um, and, you know, recently I went back to the Tour de France and I was walking down the, the, the paddock with all the team buses um, at the finish, at the, you know, by the Champs-Élysées, by the Concorde de Place. And as I was walking by the team buses, uh, these swaneers from all these different teams started poking their head out you know, yell at me like, hey, we got a rice cooker on the bus and like, you know, lifting their fist up, like knowing my story and knowing, you know, what I went through. And, and that felt really, really positive as well. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's a, uh, at least in Europe, it's, it's, it's a bit of a mafia. Yeah, so I guess it, we'll it, call it a, we'll call it a mob. Yeah. And, and I ask this questions because I think, you know, which is what we want to talk about today, which was as you think about, well, how can the cycling scene combat racism and try and make itself more appealing to uh, black riders, Asian riders, et cetera. It's sort of like, I mean, the, the easiest thing is to create a culture where like, if you hear someone using racial slurs or not, you know, disrespecting someone for, you know, making Kung Fu noises as an Asian, you can create a culture where it's like, okay, to just call that person out on the spot and be like, Hey, don't, don't fucking do that. You know, that's not cool anymore. That never was cool. It's definitely not cool now. But something I, get, I keep trying to wrap my, ha my head around is like, well, what about the more ingrained, um, you know, structures and processes, you know, that lead to more of the subversive bias and racism? And I mean, Rasan, you called it out right there with the media thing. It's like, well, media can shine a light on uh, minority cyclists at all levels, not just the people who make it to the top, top, top and win an Olympic medal to write about, not just the people like the, you know, two or three who make it to the really pro level. It's like, you can look at grassroots efforts. You can look at riders who are, uh, you know, really strong in the community, et cetera. But I'm curious what you guys have thought about that, like ways uh, that the sport itself can, can address its inherent bias. I mean, that's so on the, the minds of cyclists across the country right now. And I think that just any, any, any brainstorming and thoughts we can have on that is, has tremendous value. Yeah. I believe, I believe the sport needs to come together on, on many levels. And, and to your point, like, like just tell these stories because most of like to Alan's story, that's pure ignorance more than anything. Right. 
Um, and so if, if people don't understand where one person comes from versus the other, they will continue to make a fool of themselves by trying to make a fool of someone else. Um, I've had the same thing happen to me, you know, in Germany, Belgium. Can I touch your skin? Can I touch your hair? Making monkey sounds. I've been spit on in a race, like the whole nine yards. And at the time, I was so locked in that I just kind of let it go over my head. I, you know, I was racing. Um, you know, I experienced things where I'm on a plane, you know, and and we're boarding the plane and the lady grabs her purse like, all right, lady, we're on a tube. Where am I? Even if I did grab your purse, where am I going to run to? Like, you know, so things are like that people purposely do to offend you. You know what I mean? And so I've dealt with things like that throughout my entire career, via airports, airplanes, buses, trains, you name it. And then you get to a point where you continue to either deal with it or one day you just flip out, you know, and that happened to me. It's like, all right, enough's enough. You know, you know, some older people, they don't have a filter. I finally got to that point where it's like, all right, you want to be stupid? I'll be stupid right back with you. Um, and, but those situations suck when, when all you're trying to do is, uh, earn a living by racing your bike and go about your business. Now you have to deal with the, the blatant, uh, prejudice and racism that's, that's going on in this country and in other countries. So it's tough, you know, um, and, and we all, we both know, or we all know cycling is a super tough sport and to endure all of the other things that come with it really takes away. And I think not only finance, but this is also a reason why you don't see a lot of black professionals. The, the, the route to success is much higher than, than other people, you know, other races of people that, that participate in the sport. So um, I would say just all of cycling needs to come together and continue to start telling stories, you know, um, like Alan's comfortable enough to tell that story. That should be somewhere for other people to read because there's someone else right now that's making those same jokes to an Asian person right now, you know, and it's just, no one has told them right from wrong. You know what I mean? Uh, as an adult. And sometimes when you grow up in a household and that's what you learn, you continue to do it. You then teach your kids. They, when does it stop? You know? Um, and that's the same with, um, you know, I, I, I feel for Corey Williams he, his post about, you know, not getting an opportunity to even race on the national team. And to some, it's like, oh, you just weren't good enough. He's definitely good enough. Even if even if he wasn't the best, he deserved a shot. And the and, and the big picture for that is here's a family um, that grew up in a hood that is scraping by month by month to survive. But imagine if he were able to get on the national team, get some results in Europe, now race for a world tour team that changes the whole makeup of his family and their future. But now it's still the same cycle. His dad was a bike racer, too. He didn't become pro, you know, and this is not talking down on their family. It's just saying that we don't get a fair share. So we're always trying to play catch up where all he needed was that one opportunity to get on the national team. If he sucked after that, then so be it. But he didn't even get the, his chance to get a, his foot in the door, which could change, again, the whole trajectory of their future. And that's that's so important, you know. And, and I think that a lot of people don't look at it from that lens. They're just looking at how many watts can you put out and how do you finish? You know what I mean? Um, so it needs to be a more collective effort to really change uh, the, the makeup and, and how – how black people even look at the sport, you know, it's a white sport. Okay, fine. But black people do cycle, you know, and you guys probably know this too. More black people are buying bikes than ever right now. You know, more black people are more educated than ever right now and are CEOs and stuff like that. So when I say we all have to come together, I'm talking about everyone. Yeah. I think Rasan is really right in that sharing stories does matter. I think that, uh, you know, it's also important who you share those stories to. And I think that one of the things that I've kind of done wrong in my life is that I haven't shared those stories with the, you know, Asian American community or with other minority communities. Um, you know, but it's funny because like one of the proudest things that I've accomplished in the sport of cycling was never seen really by anyone in cycling. The proudest thing I ever accomplished in cycling was that I got called out by discretion.com, right? And Discretion.com was this website 
uh, it was kind of a parody website amongst Asian Americans. And if you were an Asian American and you fucked it up, they would call you out and you'd mm-hmm. get race to the race, right? So every week they would call out the discretion, who was the disgrace to the race. And every week they would also call out the amazion of the week, like some Asian who was actually making, making the community proud. And I got called out as an amazion one week, which was like maybe the best thing ever, you know? But I think Asian Americans as a whole have, have stayed quiet. We try to duck and hide. Um, you know, we are ruled by a lot of fear, which makes us, you know, racist towards a lot of groups as well. Right. Um, but that's a, that's a, that, I think that's a lesson learned. And that's something that I hope to strive to, to do more, not just to be more active in cycling, but to be more active outside of cycling where I can get other people into the sport because me talking to other cyclists about it, I don't know if it helps if it's an echo chamber. Right. Um, you know, beyond that, it, it is this really dealing with this big contradiction of, of elitism, especially around competition versus, you know, kind of the notion of humanism or equality. There is this idea about elitism where you got to believe that you're better from, than someone else. And that at the very heart forms the, the, the basis of, of any kind of ism, right? Racism or whatever it may be. And so we're always trying to be better than other people. And yet, if we're doing that without seeing that there is kind of a different playing field that everyone's on, then, then that, that, that makes it really, really rough. And so I go back to these models of thinking about affirmative, a, uh, affirmative action in academia and wondering if that has a place or a role, right? Um, you know, whereas, you know, in normal society, there's this maybe falsehood about the American dream being a meritocracy and how everybody wants sport to continue to be a meritocracy, they're all in conflict with one another. So solutions are going to be, are going to be hard. Again, you heard me mention it at the top of the show. Today's episode is sponsored by Whoop, the fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress and exertion you put on your body throughout the day. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability that can be used as an indicator for how to approach your day. Is today going to be a big training day? or a legs up on the couch day. Whoop will tell you the app has built-in features like Strain Coach, which gives you target exertion goals to work out optimally at your body's recovery level. Listeners get a great deal on Whoop. You can get 15% off by going to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. Enter the code VELONEWS, all caps, VELONEWS, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, optimize your performance with Whoop today. Okay. Let's get back to Rasan and Alan. Especially from an economic standpoint, because I mean, I, I've written about so many different um, American cyclists on their way up through the sport. And, you know, at some point, unless they're like so naturally gifted, they're like a, you know, TJ or a Taylor that from the time they're, you know, 15, they're put in some program in, in the pathway to the Tour de France. And it's like, at some point, there's going to be that period in their life where they have to like go race in Belgium on some terrible team where they're not making a whole lot of money or they have to like, you know, knock their heads around in the domestic league and not, not make a lot of money. There has to be a, there's a period in which like, in order to take the next step, they have to have a safety net. And like, you know, as we look at in regular society, it's like, you know, when you have to have a safety net there, then you really limit the number of people who are going to progress because it's like upper middle-class people. You know, it's like, why is it that so many cyclists come from these upper middle-class backgrounds? It's like, well, because they had the money to to buy the bike and get them involved and drive them around to races to begin with. But then at the same time, there's that maybe one or two or three years where they got to live off of mom and dad. You know, it's like mom and dad are going to be sending me checks to help me like survive that experience in Europe or whatever. And if you don't have a, a mom and dad, or if you don't come from a background or whatever, where there's that amount of money, then that limits just from a pure financial standpoint, that's just from a pure financial standpoint, limits the the type of people who can like progress in the sport. And like, it's the same in journalism. I point the finger at myself. I of course had a period in my life where it was just like, you know, in order to take the next step as a journalist, I'm going to have to do these internships and do this stuff that's going to be unpaid. And like, 
I got to have some financial assistance. And like, I, I come from, you know, a family that was able to do, to do that. But like, there's so many people out there that don't have that luxury. And, um, you know, that just, that comes to mind is a very basic mechanism that weeds out the pool of people who can like continue on in the sport just from a dollars and cents. But that, but that being said, I will point out this other kind of maybe fallacy around all of this, which is that we always put competition on a pedestal. We always put the Tour de France on a pedestal, right? We always think that we got to be over in Europe racing in the classics. Fuck that shit. Like whatever happened to the great American crit racer, mm-hmm. right? Whatever happened to creating our own culture around cycling in the United States that isn't only based on competition, but is also built on advocacy. It's also built on health and nutrition, physical activity, access, you know, uh, uh, transportation equality, all of that sort of stuff, right? And so if we just get more kids involved at a very young age and create the infrastructure for cycling as a whole, you know, just so I can ride my bike safely to the comic book book store, right? Let alone decide to race bicycles. The competition is going to take care of itself in some ways, but we have to actually increase the pool that is coming into it. And there's a lot of inequality in, in how that pool is even being filled, right? Yeah, a good example, um, a good example of that, and and I know that they're working on it. And I applaud them for what they're doing. Is uh, the NICA uh, Foundation, you know, and and their league, great. Again, a bunch of kids on bikes, but the reality is, a bunch of those kids, you know, come from families that can afford to buy them a you know nine, fifteen thousand dollar, you know, a full suspension mountain bike and get them to nationals and, and pay the $85 entry fees for a local race, whatever it may be. So I've been trying to encourage them, Hey, let's bring this to the inner city too. You know, let's, this is where it can change because look how many, uh, look how many champions now you could talk about that are racing road and mountain bikes that came from Nike already, you know? So you see that it's such a positive uh, platform. You see it gets kids on bikes. It gets them, to college they they could start their careers post-college they could start racing professionally if they decide to go to college or not so those opportunities need to be there across the board you know for the parents that can't afford the ten thousand dollar full suspension mountain bike and have a pickup truck to put the mountain bike in to get to a you know i mean it's a big production you know what i mean it's 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 not like uh going to a pickup basketball game you know what i mean where you can catch the bus there or you could even run there or walk. You know what I'm saying? It's 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 too many different uh, variables that that pulls people away from the sport. And so again, it's going back to collectively how how can we positively make change? Like Alan mentioned, um, it's not about it's not always about like the highs to the fronts. You know, when I started my team in 2010, the found date the reason we started the team was to use the riders as the messengers to tell the story about the Bahati Foundation and encourage kids in the inner city and, and uh, underserved communities that are being disenfranchised and marginalized that, hey, you can do this too. That's why we had all these riders from all over the country. You know, it could have been totally a California-based team, but that was kind of like narrow-minded for me. I was, it was like, hey, we can really tell the whole United States about what we're doing. Um, and that's what the team was about. It was a professional team that was spreading the gospel about giving back. You know what I mean? Yeah, Alan, you brought up an amazing point right there that speaks to the the whole thing, which is yeah, the Tour de France and success at in European racing is what we and by we I mean media, USA Cycling, the whole structure of the sport uses the measure to success, and that by its very nature is going to limit the amount of people who can get to that point, and that by its very nature is going to send a message to someone like Rasan. I mean, Rasan, you're national crit champion, and yet there's probably still these sort of messages coming down that like, well, you're not a success because you're not racing the Tour de France. Or like Justin and Corey, it's like you could view through what they're doing through that very narrow lens and say, yeah, well, Legion of Los Angeles is never going to race the tour. So they're not a success. But another way to view that is like, look at what they're doing and look at the success they're having. And like they're winning these pro races on Zwift and they're winning crit championships and they're influencing all these people and they have a really cool style and they like they're kind of rewriting what success has to look like. And then, then it, the onus is on myself and the media and cycling fans out there to actually 
understand that and change their understanding of what success in cycling looks like. Maybe like going and winning the Tour de France as an American isn't the like measure of success we have to apply to every single cyclist out there. Sure. And and, and to that point, the, the reason the tour is such the, 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 the race that's at, you know, the top of the totem pole is because that's literally the only race in America that the American media outside of like cycling media focuses on, you know, and, and ESPN will do some results, especially if there's some Americans in it, but it's not really, no one is really touching the Athens twilights, you know, of, of the world and uh, the Tulsa Tufts, you know, yeah, you can stream it. Okay. That's cool. But think about if like the Tulsa Tough race was a three day uh, weekend and you could watch it on like ESPN or something like that. Every kid know what ESPN is. They even make the sound when they do something cool by themselves. Da, 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 da. You know, it's like top 10. They have all these different things that they can connect themselves to uh, to ESPN because that's what they know. So it's like how we need to get that exposure of the sport on national television so everyone can see it. You know, um, that's why kids love basketball and football and baseball. They could see it. It's there. This Tour de France is kind of like this mystical thing out somewhere across the pond where we we know france is in europe but exactly where france is i don't know and a bunch of guys in tights that don't look like me are doing it for a stupid amount of days you know that's kind of like this concept that they have and why are all these motorcycles in the group too like they don't even understand what's going on so um that's that, i think that's another way that we can expose cycling is just like you know those those races are ex- exciting and they should be they should be on TV somewhere. And, you know, I know it takes money and I know it takes resources, but we've come a long way and we have a long way to go and we got to continue to keep talking about it and not just talking. It's got to be some actions in, in place too. Yeah. You know, Rasan, I think you're, you're right. There's so much that can be done within our own sport and how we identify with it, the economics of it. Right. We have a powerful media here in the United States, but, when I start thinking about that, it also brings to the point of sport in general in the United States, um, the biases that exist and the fact that, you know, we're dealing right now with bigger social issues and that um, as minorities in a minority sport, you know, there's no way that you can disconnect what is happening in our society as a whole from any of that, right? So um, that's where things begin to matter. You know, for example, like I think, you know, regardless of sport that you're in, when you look at the athletes who have made it to the very, very top wire, it's very much the outlier who has made it without having strong, consistent family and community support their whole entire lives to get them to that point, right? And if you've got communities are, are, are ripped apart and it's not there for a kid, there's no pathway regardless of the sport, right? Um, being that good at something is so hard that while we like to, you know, um, always celebrate the individual in this country, man, the collective that it takes to get one person to get on a podium, mm-hmm. staggering, right? And if now that collective is being hampered by racism, well, then you're screwed. Literally. Yeah. 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 And that's why, I mean, like, it's, it's so deep that for sure this is not this at least this call is not the platform to even talk about it but just to put it all in perspective for you and how i look at things you gotta remember black people were slaves they were freed and then with the jim crow then we had civil rights then we had um all these different boycotts and now we have today so when people ask me like i have i've had a lot of people that just reach out to me hey how you doing you know you're my black friend. I got. I better check on you. How you doing? And you know, there's shots some time when I go. I mean, I'm doing all right. Same thing, different day. You know, um, I was. I was. I went through the rides. I've seen. You know, what it looks like to have your whole community burned down. I've seen police brutality before. I've. I've been profiled for driving while black. You know, uh, I've been profiled for shopping while black. You know, so it's like, honestly, since I've been living, where I can articulate what. Um, what uh, racism and what prejudice look like, it's the same to me, you know, 
it literally nothing has changed in in the in the 30 plus years I've been alive. So it's just that's why I think now I do kind of feel like there's starting to be like this paradigm shift, but only time will tell, you know. And and that's that's the part that's like encouraging, but also like uh, how long do we have to wait for change, you know? Yeah. Well, I think change happens really, really slowly when you recount that history, you know, from the Civil War, the Reconstruction, to the rise of the Ku Klux Klan during, you know, the Jim Crow era, right? Um, there were like these big leaps and then these big leaps backward. And the net net is that, you know, you're watching basically uh, an iceberg melt uh, and occasionally big chunks fall off and then it looks the same for a really, really long time, right? And then maybe very slow melt and then maybe another chunk breaks off. Um, I hope that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing a big chunk fall off from the momentum of, you know, now hundreds of years of history, right? Um, I think that when I look at history, I say, hey, yeah, things have slowly gotten better, but there still is a ton that needs to to happen you know in fact like stuff with the jim crow stuff we saw it paralleled what was happening in the in the chinese community in america at the time where you had these jim crow laws come out and then you had the chinese exclusion come out you know right around the same the same time that said that by race chinese were not allowed to immigrate to america right um very similar things and then you know the that didn't really get disbanded until the civil rights act of of 1864 right the next year in 1865 for the chinese so we've made progress in history but we've also man you know it's going to take well, a while go. it's it's going to take generations right yeah. but you can be part of that generation i think that i'm bolstered by even the conversation we had on friday where you know I asked you if you wanted to ask me <laughs> for help or if I wanted to ask you, like, I have such a hard time fucking asking people shit for things. Yeah, sure. Right. But like, even just communicating to one another, like maybe we need to ask each other for help when we need it. That's a big step, right? It is. Yeah. And, and I think that's why, you know, from, like I, I said in the article, you and I have a, a, a very cordial relationship, no hard feelings anywhere. And I think this is why from the outside looking in, um, because I don't know your everyday life, you know, we don't talk every day. We don't text every day. Um, I feel like you and you did clarify some things for me, but outside looking in, you are part of the power structure, right? Yeah. Um, uh, like you just said, I haven't worked in the world tour since 2000, 2011. I didn't know that, you know, I thought you were there every year. Um, but so that's why it's important to tell the story because again, outside looking in Alan, uh, the JVs of the world and, uh, the Stapletons of the world, they're the power structure of cycling and you guys can make a huge impact on what cycling looks like, look like 20 years from now. But yeah. if, if it stays in what I call this kind of like uh, underworld of fraternity, nothing's going to change. And, and that was really like, I think the meat of the piece for me was like, let's get these people who are very educated. They could absolutely positively make uh, change. They need to start making change and not stay in the bubble that they've been living in. And that's, that was kind of like where, where I stand. And I hope that that this piece, this conversation can just kind of shed light and pop that bubble and say, okay, you know what? You're right. I'm taking this off. I'm going to take this head on and make change. Um, and, you know, for those who get offensive and they still don't see the, don't see the light and that's, we got to keep working on it. You know, we got to no, work on it until they see the a, light. That's a major compliment for me to, for you to think of me as a leader in the sport because I always felt like a minority in the sport. I always felt like an outsider in the sport. I didn't self-identify like I, in a way that I felt like I had power mm. uh, to, to do stuff, right? So it's both a wake-up call as well as a compliment to be notified of the fact that you have influence, that you have a leadership uh, role, a leadership possibility. Um, and that that only comes out if you share your personal story right and let people know what that's what that's about mm -hmm. so thank you for that 
So I'm, I'm challenging you, Alan. I want you to focus on um, working with the inner city to see if we can find our next, um, our next scientist engineer of some sort that can help develop some new things for scratch. Uh, you know, I know that this, this scratch formula is really good. I've tried it, used it myself. And there's sports within the inner city that could definitely use it. So, you know, uh, there's some smart kids out there. I would love to see uh, get an opportunity to work for your company. Yeah, I That's think a challenge I, to you. I, I accept that challenge, man. And I, <laughs> I think about like how we can take the STEM work. You know, like I've been I'm on the board of directors of Heaven Minds with Mike Friedman. OK. Uh, organization that teaches young kids how to ride bikes. Yep. Many of them for the very first time. And then mm -hmm. we use bikes to then teach them science curriculum. Yep. And we've been talking a lot about the fact that while we do this in our own community, this is not an inner city community mm. that we work in, right? Um, and so the next step, I think, for us is to create the curriculum to go into those places where uh, these programs don't exist and start to teach other people how to be, um, you know, those, those leaders as well, sure. right? I think that this is about scale, right? Um, we got to be able... I've got to be able to scale the knowledge I have, share it with as many people as possible, take it to places that you don't normally see this stuff. And that just might mean a lot more trips to see you and my mom in LA, right? I mean, Rasan, from your interview, what I took away from that too is like, I started thinking about my own place in cycling and like, you know, I'm in media. I'm the editor of a cycling magazine. I I myself think of myself as an outsider and not a member of the power structure or whatever. And then it's sort of like I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, wait a second. I absolutely have influence. I'm actually I'm, – I'm absolutely a person who influences people and like what have I been doing? I could do more. And I think that I just started to think about cycling in general and it's such a grassroots sport and such a participant-driven sport and every single person in American cycling has the has the potential to influence and every single person in American cycling has the potential to be a leader. It's like, I just think back to my experiences in like collegiate cycling and like someone had a big personality and they were a leader. Someone was fast, they were a leader. Someone organized that, that ride for the week, the team ride for a week, they were a leader. And if you can start to think of yourself as the, if everyone in American cycling can start to think of themselves as a leader and see that the, you know, one of the roles of a leader in cycling is to try and get more people involved in the sport and different types of people involved in the sport and, you know, help the sport overcome its diversity problem. I mean, I think that's, that's one thing I took away from your conversation for sure was like, you know, saying, you know, oh, the JVs and the Allen limbs of the world. It's, I was like, well, what about the Fred dryers of the world? Like, Oh, I, I could have very easily been mentioned in that breath and it would be very appropriate and like, yeah. you know, put the mirror on myself. Sure. Yeah. And this is the time, like, like I said, just take it head on, you know, and the way you go about anything else in your life that needs to be done. It's, it's, it's a problem. Let's face it. Let's fix it. You know what I mean? And, and, and share that with everyone that, you know, they're not willing to make change, move on to the next person, you know? You know, I was bolstered by your your comment to me, Rasan, uh, last week when I was talking about how I never identified as a social activist before in my life. That's mm -hmm. never been something that I've wanted to take on. It just it hasn't occurred to me. Like, I've wanted to be the best coach or physiologist or teacher um, out there. And you said, well, teaching is activism, right? And uh, I take that to, to, to heart because this is about education. It is about not being ignorant and that you know, um, we don't have to change our careers per se, but we do have to understand the impacts that our careers have. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's, there's activism everywhere. Well, guys, I really appreciate it. I have um, tremendously enjoyed the last hour of our lives in this conversation. Um, you know, solving the problem of racism in, in cycling let alone world, you know, life. Solving the problem of lack of uh, inclusivity in cycling, let alone in real life, are much too big of problems to solve in one conversation. But I do think we've provided our listeners with a lot of um, good topics to think on and hopefully the beginning of a discussion that's just going to continue year in, year out. And hopefully we've, we've shown people this is an important discussion to, to have every day. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I appreciate you bringing us together. Um, and just just to talk, and I think we did a lot of talk talking today, uh, which will lead towards some positive change. So uh, thanks for, for bringing, like I said, for bringing us together. Thank you. Thanks, Rasan.